Hello and welcome to The Matrix Podcast, a podcast written and produced by Athens High School students. I'm Henry Welsh and I'm here with Lydia McCunis and Andy Veladota. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the training and importance of emotional support animals and service animals with two dog trainers. Service animals are highly trained dogs that have gone through years of lessons and testing in order to help a person with their own specific needs. These can be physical needs, such as picking things up for people who struggle with motor skills, or illness-related issues, such as seizures and allergies. Emotional support animals are not required to undergo training, and they do not have to be dogs. Oftentimes, these animals are more suited for those with mental illnesses rather than physical ailments. We interviewed Ellen Galliano, who works on training during the early stages of a puppy's life when the puppy is being considered as a potential future service animal. We also interviewed Joanna Sedote, who works as a trainer at Connecting Spirits Animal Training. We received insight on different methods of training for dogs that are going into positions of service, as well as the qualifications that the dogs must meet to be considered a service animal. Along with that, we discuss the difference between emotional support animals and service animals. The first trainer we interviewed was Ellen Galliano, who works on training puppies during the early stages of their lives. Ellen has trained multiple puppies that have made it all the way through the testing and criteria required for a dog to become a service animal. She worked with one dog, named Finn, that is now helping out a young girl who has issues bending over to pick things up. He has been going to school with her and has helped to improve the quality of her life and the ease with which she makes her way through the day. Hi, I'm Ellen Galliano, and I teach art here at Athens High School. That's great. Um, we wanted to know, first off, how long you've been a trainer. Um, so I'm not an official trainer. Uh, what I did last year is I was a puppy raiser for an organization called Four Paws for Ability. And what that meant was um, we take a dog from a puppyhood through his adolescent years basically that goes real fast it's all within a year um, so we teach them basic manners and teach them how to behave in public and give them lots and lots and lots of different experiences and then they get evaluated at about a year year and a half and then they go for advanced training um, back at four paws so I don't have anything to do with that part of it um, but I, you know, I've always had an interest in dogs and um, communicating with dogs and having pets that could do things. So it's just a hobby. What steps did you take to learn how to do all of this training? Um, so about 20 years ago, we worked with a different organization called Canine Companions for Independence, and they are out of Columbus. And um, we were puppy raisers for their program. And our first dog was a golden retriever. Her name was Patty. She was very sweet, um, but she didn't pass. She just she didn't have the temperament for it. Um, and they have, w with any service dog organization, you have about a 50 to 60 percent fail rate, so that those dogs just decide, hey, I don't want to be a service dog. They're not they're not cut out for it. So Patty was a fail. She was, we call them fabulous flunkies. Aww. She had to lie very, very still and have a bunny pass right in front of her and not move. And you can think about how many dogs can do that. I, mean, I don't think I could even do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's like that show I just saw where you had to not touch things and you get a prize at the end if you could not touch them and they brought out a dog and they brought out bunnies and you had to not touch them. I would not win. No. <laughs> um, do you think that there are some ways 
or forms of training that work better than others? Um, yes. So since I've been interested in training, I, mean, I always had dogs as a kid, and I would just sort of wander the woods with my dogs and just sort of have them as pets. But then as an adult, I started learning how to communicate with them and train them. And 20 to 30 years ago, um, there was positive reinforcement, um, but also a negative reinforcement where you might have um, a training collar, for example. Um, and, and the trend now is all positive reinforcement. So trying to get the dogs to do what you want with uh, some reward. Um, and then transition them away from the reward to a less frequent reward. Or then just, you know, then they learn the, the command or the trick or whatever. Yeah. So right now, I have a personal dog that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. um, the service dog that we just trained um, has now been successfully placed. This one was not a flunky. He passed. His name was Finch. And he is with a little girl named Kaylee. And um, she has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And so she has trouble bending and picking things up. So the thing he does for her is hand her things. And so it's very, very sweet. The dog's great. Um, and they are just such a perfect team for each other. And um, so I was thinking, okay, um, we're not doing the, another service dog right now. It does break your heart when you have to, to give them back. We're not doing one now, so we got a pet. And I'm like, oh, I'll just teach him to do all these things too. Um, but it's hard, but I've taught him how to hand me things and I've had him um, learn how to do, the thing we're working on now is the light switch. So oh. he can jump on the chair and reach the lights. Only it's a bank of three light switches, so he's not sure which one to do. So he <laughs> turns the hall light on, but then the room lights off. So he gets kind of confused. Very oh. sweet part of the training and it's all done re with reward. That's great. Yeah. So you, you think definitely positive reinforcement is better than negative? It's definitely the trend. You know, I think there may be a place for a balance between both. You know, um, there are times when you have a dog that won't respond and pulls, pulls, pulls. If you can convince their brain to follow the treat, that's better. But sometimes they need a little tug to snap their brain out of, like, staring at the cat or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it is that they're focused on. Yeah. So um, definitely trends. Lots of videos, lots of YouTube videos on dog training that help. Yeah. What is the most important thing to keep in mind during the process of training? Oh, gosh. Do you have to be in a certain headspace for it? Yeah. So dogs pick up on your um, mood tremendously. They, they're visual creatures, and they read your body language. It doesn't really matter the words you're saying. It matters how you're saying them, what you're doing with your hands at the time. Um, so, like, when people ask their dogs to do math problems, solve math problems, they're giving them some sort of visual clue to the answer. Like, you know, you bark until I say stop barking with my eyes or, or, or something. So they're really looking for those clues. And if you're angry or annoyed or just you're not in the right headspace, that was a good way you put it, it's just not going to work. The dog is going to get stressed. And even with leashes, they can pick up your tension at the end of the leash without looking at you. So if you see a dog coming at you and you're nervous that your dog, you don't know how your dog is going to react, they'll pick that up. Right. Um, I think, do you, 
do when you're training a specific service dog. I think one time I like ran into you at a Walmart with. Yeah. I, think, I think it was Finch. Oh yeah. Um, you came to say hi. Uh, yeah, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> um, yeah. But do you do a lot of that, like working with them in public arenas, and um, like teaching them, like like. Sorry, like doing specific stuff. Like I noticed you had him at school sometimes, like teach him how to be calm around kids. Yeah. Like, do you do a lot of that? So in order to be a service dog, you have to be confident and have a lot of experiences to build that confidence. Um, and they start, even as little puppies, they start um, noises in the puppy house that they might hear out. Um, and all dogs are different. Some of them... Um, they have to have the right temperament. They, some of them may spook. Um, one of the trainers at Four Paws was telling me how her dog's confident in every situation, but is terrified of flower pots. And she had to really work with that dog to, to be able to sit next to a flower pot and not get freaked out by it. Mm-hmm. And who knows what he was thinking, you know, it's, it's a flower pot to us, but to him, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to have lots and lots of exposures to have that confidence grow. And it's also, they're bred for this. Um, They're very careful with their breeding programs and only breed the friendliest, most confident dogs that maybe have a good nose. I know there's a line there that has an especially good nose because these dogs have to do tracking as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess I kind of lost my train of thought there, but um, so it's not just about the training. The dog has to be wanting to work um, and interested in pleasing their person. And um, they have to have the aptitude for it, which is part of the breeding. My current dog that I'm working with now would make a terrible service dog. He's unpredictable, he's too alert. He's you know watching the horizon for cattle and wolves and things like that. It's an Australian Shepherd. Um, uh, do you have an Australian yes. Shepherd? <laughs> I, I see. So, would your dog make a good service dog? Um, it really depends because I think that he would make a good service dog for me or my mom because uh-huh. he's uh, very smart, but um, he is like, and I think that he would 100% defend us yeah. in any sort of like dangerous situation. Yeah. But I think that for other people, he's just like, oh, a friend, okay, like <laughs> I'm just gonna. Um, do that which also I have a follow-up question do you think that people who train their own dogs to become service dogs that sometimes that works better in terms of the dog's motivation for wanting to help a specific person I don't think so and the reason for that is we love our dogs no matter what and we tend to not see their fault their faults and their flaws Um, so you know, if they're working with a team of trainers, they're gonna have different ideas with how to work with this dog to bring the best out of the dog. But if you're just on your own and you have a problem, you may not know how to solve that problem. You don't know how to work around it. So you kind of need that team um, of experienced handlers. It's, it's, it's pretty crucial. There's a huge problem right now with people um, having comfort support animals, and um, emotional support dogs, and they pass them off as service dogs. But these dogs are not task trained. And a service dog is protected by uh, the American Disabilities Act, where they are, um, they're actually considered a device, a medical device is how they're classified 
that allows their person to participate fully in society, go anywhere and function. Um, but they're task trained. And an emotional support dog often is not. They may just be cute or soft, and yes, they relax you and they're fun. But um, if you take a dog that's untrained in out into the public where something unpredictable could happen, maybe a kid sneaks up behind it and pulls its tail, you don't know that that dog's not going to turn around and react in a negative way. Right. Um, so. I'm actually working on <laughs> training my own dog right now. You are? Okay. Um, yeah, as um, I'm like, I have her registered as a service dog through a different um, facility, but I'm not like, I'm not taking her into public spaces really yet. Okay. But I am trying to train her to do stuff because I have um, PTSD uh -huh. and she's actually she's been really responsive with like treats and stuff okay. so she like if I sometimes before I have a panic attack I start scratching my hands right and so she stopped me from doing that and then she'll lay on top of me and like calm me down in that way so then those are the tasks that are that she's being trained for right to, to help um with. I had a question. <laughs> I don't. Um. So she would then qualify as a service dog, as not just an emotional support dog, right? Because, because I'm training her. Because you're training her for a specific need. Okay. Okay. I was just and wondering about that. If you think that they have to be trained by like a specific organization, or if you think not, if you know how to train a dog. Okay. The problem is there are a lot of people out there who just want their dog to go in public places. They love their dog so much they assume everyone else is. Mm -hmm. Um. It's totally legal to self-train a service dog. Um, that said, it's very, very difficult. Like, it takes a good year and a half to two years sometimes to get them ready to be in public. And that's with professional trainers. Yeah. So. Yeah, one problem that I have run into, actually, is that she'll do it if I'm just scratching my hand. Uh -huh. She'll do it, and she does it to... Um, my mom and my boyfriend as well, if they start scratching their hands, she'll be like, no. Yeah, she'll, she responds. What does she do? Does she lay on you? Um, well, a lot of times if I start scratching my hands, she'll separate my hands with her paws uh -huh. or her nose, and then she'll get, she'll lay across my lap and I'll start patting her. And if I stop patting her and start doing it again, she does the same thing. She separates my hands and just has me pat her for like a good, like, two three minutes that's brilliant yeah that's called behavior interruption mm -hmm. and it's one of the primary things that these dogs can do yeah. and it does it definitely helps with um panic attacks because something that i've learned helps me is like my senses like touching stuff so it's like um it's nice because i can just like very much focus on the way like her fur feels mm -hmm. and stuff like that and the warmth of her body yeah. and feeling her energy mm -hmm. all of that it's very important I'm not, I don't want to dismiss that when I, when I say the problem is with people with service dogs um, and people who claim an emotional support dog but the dog has no training is then when that dog behaves badly in public, then somebody who has a legitimate need can't take their dog into those public right. places. When I was training my dog, um, we went into an Old Navy and um, we were working on sits and downs and he was being just brilliant, very, being really good. And um, another family came in with a, a pit bull that was very young, obviously not trained at all, and um, their dog used the bathroom in the store. And then they left, and they didn't clean it up. And I heard the people in the store talking about it, saying, oh, did you see that dog? That dog pooped in the store. And then they were looking at me. 
And I was like, no, our dog did not poop in the store. No, we're working on downs and sits, and, and you know, we pottied first. And right. so anyway, you could see how that relationship can can damage, you know, between the business owners and, and wanting to allow people full access. Right. Yeah, that, de- that is definitely important. I don't think yeah. I've ever really thought about it in terms of people seeing a bad service dog and then blaming Blaming at all service, they they think globally. Another thing that can happen is, you know, it takes, um, gosh, I forgot what the number, it was like $17,000 for a dog like Finch to be trained and taken all the way so he's ready to meet his potential person. Um, So there's all this financial investment in people's hours and times and puppy raisers, you know, pouring their hearts into these dogs. Uh, and the trainers pouring their hearts into these dogs and then they can get scared they're like people and I've heard stories of people who service dogs have been out in the field working fine and somebody allows a, a dog into a public space that's not trained and the dog may just bark at them or scare them or lunge at them and then all of a sudden that dog can't go in those public spaces anymore because they're afraid they're going to be encountering another dog mm-hmm. so really it's just all about training training and predictability so that they can do the jobs that they're supposed to do and they can help you really that would be great yeah well yeah i mean so that the dog can help you in 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 these situations yeah Yeah. it's yeah she's very good (laughs) yeah so far um mr kit mentioned that you uh raise pomeranians as well yeah are those one of the dog breeds that have the higher aptitudes and the more confidence oh oh no no. she she's dumb (laughs) she she would not she, she no she just looks pretty okay i just didn't know if that was also a part of the no, very different temperament. In fact, very similar temperament to my Australian Shepherd, that they want to work all day, but they want to work at chasing things and catching things. Um, but my Golden Retriever and Labradoodles and, and those dogs want to interact with their owners in a different way. They want to hand them things and be close to them and um, be friendly to strangers. And my Pomeranian, my Australian Shepherd, they, they don't like people, especially except for their owner. They're very one one owner, one dog kind of. You know, yeah, I think I like heard something about that being more of like a pack mentality. Yeah. Um, especially with, I've noticed with my Aussie, he's like if my mom and I are in one room and our other dog is in the other room, he'll go and like get the other dog and be like, hey, come in here. Yeah, they like to keep people together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, f- we see that on our hikes. We see if one of un- one of us gets too far ahead, the dog gets stressed out and wants us to to be back together. And that's breeding. That's mm-hmm. that's instinct. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of want to know what you think the most difficult part of all of this is, like, or like even like what stage is the most difficult to like be training them at. Hands down, the hardest thing is give back day. Give back day. You've had this dog for a year or a year and a half, um, sometimes even two years before you have to give back. And that dog has become a part of your family. And even though you know from the beginning this dog is not your dog, it doesn't belong to you, it's going to do good somewhere else, it's still hard. It's like sending your kids off to college. You know they're going to be okay, but you miss them like crazy. So I think, you know you ball your eyes out and you pass them over and it breaks your heart but your heart's also filled when you see pictures 
of um, Finch is now going to school with his little girl. Oh, and how old is she? She is nine. Oh. Or maybe she's ten now, but she's um, fourth grade, and just Finch just started school with her. So they had some time to get used to each other before he started going into the classroom. And um, he just really helps her get through her day. I see pictures of him, you know, handing her things if she drops them, or she's lying on him, just reading a story and just feeling that connection, that closeness. Um, and he does some inter uh, behavior interruption for her as well. And it's just absolutely life-changing for the families to get these dogs. And you gotta remember that. I can train another dog for myself, but these families can't do the training. So these other families, they can't do the training. And I remember, I remind myself of that, that I can help somebody else to, to get that. Right, yeah, that's a really great thing that you're doing. Yes, yeah. that's a very special set of skills. Yeah, I, I really love it. It's 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 what I do for fun. Everybody's got to have that thing they go to. And if I'm having a stressful day, if I spend 20 minutes just throwing the ball for my dog after school, it does wonders. It's amazing. The second trainer we interviewed was Joanna Sadot of Connecting Spirits Animal Training. She works to train dogs alongside other animals using a unique clicker training method that helps the animal to associate sounds with commands. She is based in Amesville, Ohio, and has been training for 22 years. <clears throat> so, um, how long have you been a trainer? Um, hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a good question. I was fortunate enough to be born into a family that has animals my whole life, so training and being with animals is along the same line so um, I would say as long as I can remember I've been playing around with animals and and having a relationship with dogs cats horses um, and and now pigs and alpacas and birds and squirrels and <laughs> any type of animal that you can think of tigers Wolves, coyotes, fox. That's awesome. Um, very, it's a it's a cool world to think about all the animals in our world now. We interact with them and training. Um, so, back to your question of how long have I been actually training? In 1997, I crossed over to being a positive reinforcement trainer, and so this is using praise and treats and and helping the animal want to do what you want to do instead of using fear and coercion and force to make them fit into the box that you want them to fit in. Um, so over 20 years using only positive reinforcement training and before that you could pretty much train a dog with punishment but whales, wolves, horses, uh, are a little bit more dangerous when you start a fight. <laughs> cats, that's why people are like, oh, I don't know, training cats, uh, they might, you know, hurt you if you try to hurt them <laughs> or force them to do something. Um, so just because you can doesn't mean you should. 
uh, was one of our, our beginner ideas of positive reinforcement training. Um, so we, we didn't really do introductions. So I'm Joanna Sedoti, <laughs> and uh, I created my business of connecting spirits um, a, a while ago, probably about 15 years ago, for, for helping. Um, 2001 was my first dog training class that I did, so. That's really cool. Yeah. So um, I read on your website that you use the clicker training method. Mm-hmm. Could you talk to us about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so positive reinforcement is great. Um, you give them treats, praise, recognition for doing the right thing. Um, clicker training slices that down into a little bit more precise uh, communication. So the click tags the behavior and it says uh, that's exactly right and here's your reinforcement for doing it. So it gets the treats out of your hands. It gets that bribe and that lure out of the the picture as much. So they're thinking more and they're offering behaviors. And it's really nice for animals that you need to be hands off, like wolves and foxes. Um, You can tag the behavior and it's a promise you get the reinforcement. So there's a very clean procedure of training. Um, It can can help the frustration level because when animals get frustrated, sometimes they can get aggressive. So, uh, in the marine world, you see them using whistles. That's the clicker training. It tags the behavior. It's a promise they get a reinforcement for it. Um, and so, it's it's a it's a tool uh, that you can train train animals with. So, I've trained my horses, my cats, and my dogs, and I always tease my husband uh, <laughs> with it. <laughs> so, so yes, my website is connectingspirits.com. Uh, and there's there's more information on there. Awesome. I, I don't know, I highlighted it, you didn't pick a question. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, what steps did you take to become a trainer? That's a good question. Um, there's so much information out there now, and I decided in high school that I wanted to become an animal behaviorist and decided to study psychology and biology. So I got a um, degree at Ohio University in biology and psychology and studied animal training as much as I could. So lots of different uh, seminars and lots of different um, conferences. And it's really about experience more than anything else. You have to learn the, the basics of psychology and biology and know the animal that you're working with. But the more hands-on you do, it's really about learning from every animal that you can. They have so much to teach us. Would you say that the clicker training method would be the best method for um, training animals that maybe need to perform more precise tasks like service animals? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a fascinating world. There's so many jobs that animals have in our world. And like I said, in the last 20 years, it's really crossed over in the world. So um, 
it it helps the precision, it helps the efficiency, and it helps the mentality of of both parties. Um, Michelle Puglio is one of the one of the trainers I've learned from, and she she turned over her seeing eye organization, seeing eye dogs organization, from punishment to positive reinforcement, and. Some of her videos are just amazing from before and after that a working seeing eye dog has to be on, has has to be precise, has to be bomb proof. You're leading this person through the world and you are going to come across live situations and you have to know what to do. And that person has to rely on that dog so much and the dog has to rely on the person. It has to be a really deep relationship. Um, and before they would fit the dog into the box with punishment and, and force, and it was more a mechanical thing, right? And so uh, she's crossed, the, crossed them over to positive reinforcement and the video of the dog working before, the tail was down, the dog was serious, straightforward, more machine-like. And the second video of the positive reinforcement dog, the tail was up, the tail was wagging, the dog was so confident in what it was doing and checking in with its human and ready to bring its best self forward. Um, and it was just so cool to see the different uh, body language in the dog. That they, they both had the same behaviors, they both did very well, um, but, but the positive reinforcement dog was, was excited to be there. Awesome. What is the length of time that it takes for the average service animal to be trained? That's a good question. And the definition of service animal has exploded in what these animals are, what their job is for. So like I said, there's the seeing eye dog, right, that leads the blind person around and gets them out of the house to be able to experience life um, and go places. Um, and then there's the diabetic uh, alert dog that can tell you when your blood sugar is too high or too low. And then there's the dog that is a seizure alert dog. So people can go out confidently that they will be protected by their dog and be able to get back home safely. Uh, so there's a lot of different aspects to training a service dog. And the, the, the task itself usually isn't the hardest part. It's being able to be in real life situations every day, what's called bomb-proof behaviors, right? They have to be able to perform no matter what. Um, their person is having a seizure. They need to be able to be there and not be like, oh, there's a dog over there. <laughs> Did you see that person? You know, they have to be there and be present with their person. And, and it has to be a bomb-proof behavior. So the behavior itself isn't usually that hard. But being out in public and being in real life is the hardest part. And that, that can be, I, I think, for the... Um, for the, the guide dogs for the blind, it's it's two or three years to, to place them with somebody. Um, and different institutions have different processes. A lot of times they um, have uh, puppy um, 
trainers that the dog as a puppy goes and lives with somebody until they're a year old and then they go back and then they can be trained for the specific tasks they need to because babies and puppies don't have the capacity to be an adult service dog right so um yeah it's it's a wide range and that's one of the the interesting things about um uh, Alexandra Curlin trained a uh, service horse, a seeing eye horse, miniature horse. <laughs> so a large dog size horse, um, which is amazing because dogs have a life expectancy that is so much shorter than horses. And to train a seeing eye dog and have them be with that person for 10 years is 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 uh, what can be expected at most sometimes, whereas horses can live 40 years, 30 years, right? So the world of, of service animals um, is, is, is really coming about with, um, like I said, diabetes alert dogs that you can have at home and you don't necessarily need to take places with you. And yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool and it's very, diverse so it's hard to answer how long it would take but yeah because there's so many different behaviors (laughs) has there ever been a time where you've had uh so much difficult uh, difficulty with an animal that um it takes like a lot longer than expected to sure sure yeah and so many people have dogs in their houses right and then they're like oh i've been diagnosed with diabetes and maybe my dog can help me with this and and the dog is really great at knowing their person and so it doesn't take much time at all to say okay this is a scent when you smell this scent you do this behavior great pretty straightforward do it at home perfect um and then other times you get a puppy and you have to start from scratch and other times you get a rescue dog and you have baggage that comes with that and you have to train train all sorts of things in in each dog and it's it's so fascinating me because every animal is so different just like every human is so different and every couple working together is different every household is different so um uh yeah it's it's definitely dependent on the dog and person and what they bring to the table um and lastly what is the most important thing to keep in mind during the process of training the most important thing is now as a positive reinforcement trainer is to keep it fun. Um, it's easy to get frustrated, especially if you have a goal, you have a deadline, you need to meet it, and it's not going right. What do you do? Um, and push, come to, come to shove, take a step back, think about it, and go back. And, and it's we've come so far in doing two-minute training sessions and how far you can get in doing two-minute training sessions and saying okay we need a break (laughs) versus saying we need to train for an hour and we need to drill and we need to you know get this done Uh, so so keep the thought process going and keep it fun all right well that's all we have for you thank you so much thank you very much yes thank you for having me my pleasure Thank you for listening to this episode of The Matrix Podcast. I'm Lydia McCunis, working alongside Henry Welch and Andy Velladotta. 
Special thanks to Ellen and Joanna for taking the time out of their days to allow us to interview them. Thank you to Quick Nibby for composing our intro and outro music. Thank you to Sarah Lewis for helping out with tech and sound. Make sure to tune in next week for the next episode of The Matrix Podcast. Thank you.